0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to think about difficult things, uh, you will give us the humility to hear your word and that we would be moved by your word and what it says of our future uh, to put our trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly And gracious Father, give us all conviction of the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you uh, noticed, but as Chris said last week, in the midst of campaigning, Scott Morrison was put on the spot about who goes to hell. And he fluffed it. Uh, The issue was raised by Bill Shorten, who reportedly said... I can't believe the Prime Minister has not immediately said that gay people will not go to hell. I hope Mr Shorten doesn't believe that the Prime Minister's powers extend to deciding who goes to hell or not, for he will be sadly disappointed. But he has done us all a great favour by putting the question of hell on the public agenda. Uh, You may not feel that. In fact, you may feel a little awkward about the whole matter, perhaps even a little unsettled and defensive, uncomfortable with having to seemingly defend the indefensible, deeply uncomfortable about the thought that some you love may be going there. There was a reason the PM fluffed it. We are, on the whole, very reluctant to think or talk about hell. But public discussion of hell is an opportunity for believers in Jesus to talk about sin judgment and being saved from hell by our Lord Jesus, to talk about who does and who does not go to hell. It's an opportunity to face the bad news so that we can talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And so this evening I want to help you as believers in Jesus to think about hell, so that you can speak about hell if it comes up so that by God's grace others may be saved from the hell we all deserve. I want to equip you, if you're a believer, to speak about the worst so that you can share the best. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, sitting here and overhearing a conversation about what you might find a distasteful topic, let me assure you Christians don't want anyone to go to hell and that the concerns caught up in talking about hell they're actually not abstractly religious concerns but human universal concerns you see talk about hell is part of the christian answer to the very human question what happens when we die in particular it is part of the answer to the question of whether there is when we die some accounting for the way we have lived our lives now these are not uniquely christian questions They are human questions which have had a range of answers across the centuries. For example, many around the world believe in karma, that what you do in this life has consequences in your next rebirth, that you can never escape the consequences of your thoughts and actions. Others have believed in some kind of afterlife, not a cycle of death and rebirth, but some place where you experience the consequences of what you have done in this life. The ancient Greeks, for example, had an abode for the souls or shades of the dead, Hades, with various levels and torments depending on what you had done and also the Elysian fields for the righteous. Some more recently have answered these questions by confidently claiming that nothing happens when you die. When your body dies and rots, that's it, that's all. There's only this life and then you are finished. So there are a variety of answers for this deeply human question that goes to the heart of two very important human concerns, and those concerns are these. Firstly, is there justice? Is there justice in the world? And secondly, is there any meaning to my life beyond the meaning I might give it? Think about the first. Think about justice. Is it right that a Stalin or a Hitler who are responsible for the death of millions should experience the same end as someone who has laboured to do good to others, like Mother Teresa or like the woman you might know who has sacrificially cared all her life for her disabled child? Is it right that both just die and that's it? If you had survived the Holocaust or the gulag, would you feel that was right? Oh, is it right that a child abuser should die safely in their bed long before their crimes are exposed? And that should be the end of it, that both the abuser and his victims should have the same end. If justice is to be worked out only in this life, then injustice wins. And if the outcome is the same for someone who lives selfishly inflicting pain and misery on others and someone who lives a self-controlled, self-sacrificing life seeking the welfare of others, what does that say of life and how we should live? Do good and bad cease to have meaning? What you think happens when you die has consequences, doesn't it? For a commitment to justice and for how you live now. And that makes the question of accountability beyond death a deeply personal question. Do the choices you make in this life have any ultimate significance? Significance beyond the pleasure or pain you might experience as a consequence of them in this life. Does living just reduce to pleasing yourself now, whether that means being kind or cruel? Living just to please yourself now because there's nothing else than this life Or is there some structure of justice, of right and wrong, outside of yourself, beside your own desires and wants, stitched into the fabric of the universe, a commitment to which ennobles a life? Is there a justice that's inescapable and which rewards those who do good and punishes those who do wrong? Not just in this life, for many who do wrong, die happily in their own beds, but beyond this life, is there a structure of justice that makes how you live matter? Accountability for our lives beyond death is a deeply human personal issue. It is not just a Christian issue. But as I've said, suggested, there are a variety of ways of answering the question of what happens to us after we die, of whether there is accounting for the way we've lived after we die. Now, and of that great diversity of views, which is to be believed, it's important to work that out, isn't it? For it has consequences for how you live now. Is it just a matter of choosing whatever view suits you? What makes you feel better? Or is there someone who can speak with authority on this matter who should be believed? So let's look at two popular views and ask, are they supported by evidence? And how do they address these human concerns? As I've said, many confidently assert in the words on uh, one of my workmate's mugs, he didn't want to lose his mugs, this is what his mug had on it life's a bitch, and then you die. That's an all encompassing slogan, isn't it? That's it, this life is all there is. It's a bleak view, but many feel compelled to embrace it. So, what's the evidence? Have people gone beyond death and brought back a report? Of course, on this view, that would be impossible. And for all of us, death is the boundary of human knowing. So a belief that you just die and there is no more is not a matter of evidence, but of faith. It just expresses people's commitment to some form of materialism. The view that matter is all there is, that matter gave rise to itself and is eternal. And again, this is just an assumption, it's actually an axiom, it's a faith position that cannot prove what it assumes. It starts by assuming that matter is all there is, and so it cannot prove that starting point just by examining matter. Now, materialism sees people as nothing but their physical self, the atoms and molecules and physical processes that go on between them. And so when the physical body dies, that's it for the whole person. There is no evidence for this view. It stands or falls with the prior commitment to an unprovable materialism. And what's its answer to our human concerns? Well, on this view, you really are just a chance and transient phenomenon. And your life has no meaning beyond the momentary meaning you choose to give it. Oh, there really is no right and wrong. And for many, there will be no justice ever. Oh, that sense you might have that there's something outside yourself or you're crying out for justice. They're just the illusions of random molecular connections in your brain. Now, this is a deeply dissatisfying view of reality. Although I guess there is some consolation if you've spent your life thumbing your nose at God to think that your project will actually be a success in the end, that you'll just die. But it is such an empty success, isn't it? The triumph of your worldview is your extinction. Well, what about the view that your life is a cycle of suffering, death and rebirth, This preserves the concern for justice. In fact, it's motivated by a concern for justice, but it's actually difficult to prove impossible to improve that cycle of death and rebirth. You see, without bodily continuity, you can never prove you are or were the person you say you once were. And how can a claim that something is a memory of a previous life ever be tested satisfactorily? And is it good? How does it deal with our human concerns? Well, the hope it offers, freedom from desire, yes, is a hope, but it's a hope for escape from personal existence. Your individual self, through strenuous effort, is lost in oneness with the universe. Again, the extinction of self and its desires. And it has the cruel consequence that the disability or difficulty you may face in this life is all your fault, retribution for some sin unknown to you committed in a previous life. Now I'm happy to talk more about these views with you but neither seems satisfactory and both are faith positions, speculative inferences from their prior commitments. So what about the Christian position? That's right, we have a position. Christians do have an answer to the question of what happens when we die, and a clear view on whether there is an accounting for the way we have lived our lives, an accounting that takes place after death. Christians say we live once, we die, and after death, in the words of Hebrews, we face the judgment. In fact, Judgment is part of the Christian message. We see Paul preaching it in Acts 17 in Athens. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That judgment, that accounting, is to the God who made us, who gave us life and gave us the world in which we have lived our lives. And we are told that judgment is according to strict justice. God will give to every one of us, according to what we have done. So the wrongdoing you and I have done will get what it deserves. And let's face it, the wrong we have done, and we all do wrong, can never be balanced out by the good we do. Giving money to the poor doesn't make up for you cheating on your tax. Being kind to children doesn't make up for cheating on your spouse. We can't atone for our own wronging God, our failing to honour him, because the good we do is the good we should have done anyway. We will be judged according to what we have done, and we have all done wrong. What will be the outcome of that judgment? Well, you heard our Lord Jesus speak of that. For some it will be eternal life, and for some it will be eternal punishment. Or as Jesus says in John 5, there is a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment or condemnation. And that sentence is irreversible and final because it's the life or punishment of the age to come. There is no second chance beyond death. Now I hope you heard that. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, taught eternal punishment. He spoke of fire and the darkness that goes with it, blotting out the light. Whoever says, Matthew 5, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. He spoke of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are pictures of horror, pain, anguish, grief, Regret, and of no rest ever. Pictures, yes, but pictures to convey that being condemned in the judgment is as bad as it can possibly be. As bad as it can possibly be, but never unjust. It is God giving us what our rebellion against his rule of his creation deserves, what our sin deserves. In many ways, It's a picture of God giving rebels up to their choice. They didn't want God, don't want to have anything to do with him. In that last judgment, he's given them what they wanted. He has shut them off from his life and blessing. But now with full recognition of what they've chosen, full awareness of the holiness of the God they're defying, wanting to flee from his just anger, but never being able to hide from him. But Jesus says, not all go to eternal punishment. Some, he says, go to eternal life. Now, how can that be possible? Because we have all done wrong, we have all sinned, and we deserve hell for what we have done. And I hope if you're a believer in Jesus, you know that. Your sins are not little sins that deserve a little punishment. Your sins are sins against a great God whose honour and therefore the offence against his honour is infinite. Well, Jesus can speak of some going to eternal life because he came to give life. He came to set us free from sin and judgement by laying down his life in our place. He gives his life, he says, as a ransom. That is, he pays the price for our sin in his own death. What we deserved, punishment for our disobedience, for the wrong we have done, for our ingratitude and ignoring of God and misusing his good gifts. Our Lord Jesus has endured in his death on the cross. He, the living bread, he says, gives his life in death to give us life. And because Jesus knew he would die that death, Jesus confidently throughout his ministry offers life to all who trust him. Life not just for now, but forever. Truly, truly, he says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or when he calls people to follow him, he is actually calling them, even as he calls them to take up their cross he is calling them to life, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and this is what we've seen in Matthew 25, those who go to eternal life the sheep are those who are marked out by their love of Jesus people, the least of his brethren, in particular love for those who have been sent out to preach the gospel They show by their deeds their faith in Jesus and their welcome of his gospel, a faith that's moved them to unselfconsciously love Jesus' brothers and sisters, especially those who come and suffer for bringing the gospel to them. And that's what we've heard in Revelation 20. It's those who listen to Jesus and trust him, trust him as the Lamb of God who died to take away the sins of the world, who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus came to give that life and he offers life to all who will turn their back on being their own boss and confess that Jesus is God's rightful ruler, the person who should be in charge of our lives. And turning back to Jesus, believe his gospel that he has died for our sins and been raised from the dead. Jesus came to give life. He came to give life to you, So Christians, taught by Jesus, believe there is a judgment after death and that the outcome of that judgment is final, eternal life or eternal punishment. Now that is awesome and it's not something we generally like to think about. But not wanting something to be so does not make it go away. You will not cure your cancer by choosing not to think about it thought of judgment is fearful, that there's someone who sees and knows all even our thoughts someone who never forgets or loses track, someone who hears and sees through our self justification who will run his standard of righteousness and love over our lives and judgment as fearful is often resisted because we have uneasy consciences or because we resent the idea of giving account to our Creator God. But before you dismiss it, think of the goodness of what Jesus taught, of how it relates to our deeply human concerns. Because of judgment, your life has meaning. What you do matters, and what others do or have done to you also matters. The choices you and I make now have eternal significance. You are not just a chance byproduct of the universe here today and gone in the blinking of an eye, forgotten. The Creator thinks your life matters enough to hold you to account for how you have used His gift and how you have treated His other creatures, especially those made in His image. And there is justice. There is an objective standard of right and wrong and doing what is right matters. Matters not just to you, to how it may make you feel. Matters objectively. And God will ensure that that standard will be vindicated in the condemnation of wrong and the justification of the righteous. And you can be sure that that judgment is just. It's not a case of who can hire the better lawyer or who has the most resources to fund litigation. This judge truly knows you, is never ignorant of all the relevant facts, has no biases, even unintentional ones, will not favour the rich or poor. He is impartial and he is just. On believing in judgment, we no longer need to take vengeance ourselves. God will judge. And for those who have suffered great injustice, for which there's no redress in this life, there is the comfort of knowing that their oppressors will not get away with it. They will get what they deserve. See, though fearful, judgment is good and we jettison it it at great cost to ourselves and our society. And think of the goodness of why Jesus spoke of these things. Jesus speaks to warn us, to turn us away from death to life. He doesn't take any pleasure in any going to hell. The Lord Jesus wanted you to know it was as bad as you could possibly imagine, so you would embrace what is better than you can possibly imagine. The good news of the just and holy God who would give his Son in love for the undeserving, for rebels give his son to give them to give you and I if we trust Jesus eternal life but should Jesus be believed when he speaks of eternal life and eternal punishment well how do you demonstrate authority to speak on what happens after death well yes experiencing death is a good start but let's face it all of us will experience death but being the only one who has risen from the dead, who has come back to speak to us of death and life, that does give Jesus a unique authority. And that's what Christians proclaim. Jesus was really killed by Roman executioners on the cross and being really dead, he was buried and then he rose from the dead. You see, Jesus' death was not some near-death experience, it was death. And his resurrection was not some resuscitation by a medical team of someone whose heart had stopped but had not yet died. No, it was the resurrection of an entombed corpse. A dead and now living Jesus, who convinced those who had seen him killed that he was alive, convinced them by the evidence of their senses, by seeing him, touching him, talking with him, eating with him, A dead and now living Jesus can speak of death and what comes after death with authority. But of course, the resurrection is not just a survivor's story. It is a victor's parade. And the authority with which Jesus speaks of death and what comes after is not just the authority of experience. It is the authority of the one who rules over death and life. That's right, Jesus claimed to have authority over death, that he could lay down his life and take it up again. He claimed to have authority to judge, to exercise the judgment of God. Dying and rising are the demonstration of the truth of what Jesus said, God's vindication of his claims. Dying and rising is the demonstration of his authority over death itself. Death itself could not stop Jesus from doing exactly what he said. Jesus speaks with authority about what happens at the judgment because he makes it happen. He is the judge. He determines the outcomes. He is the one who can give life, the one who can give life to you And he is the one who will execute the judgment of God on those who continue to reject God. The risen Jesus is the one who speaks with unique authority, demonstrated authority about what happens when we die. And so whether it suits or not, he should be believed. He's a far more reliable guide on hell than self-interested politicians. And listening to Jesus, believers in Jesus should speak up and speak clearly about what happens when we die. So how might you respond to that kind of question? If asked, do gay people go to hell, how will you respond? You do need, if you're a believer, to have a thought-out response that's based on what Jesus says and leads to Jesus the only real authority on death and life after death, the giver of life after death. So let me give you some examples of how you might respond. There you are. Somebody comes and says to you, do gay people go to hell? Well, here's one response. Are you asking me about what happens to people when we die or about my attitude to same-sex attracted people? I am happy... I'm happy to talk about both. And if they want to talk about same-sex attracted people, you ought to be ready to do that. And if you want to equip yourself to be ready, have a look at or listen to Sam Aubrey, a thoughtful same-sex attracted Christian. We've got copies of his book, Is God Anti-Gay? But that's a very helpful podcast on the same topic. And if they want to talk about hell, about what happens when they die, you also ought to be ready. You might say, well, who goes to hell is part of a bigger question and a bigger answer about what happens to us when we die. What do you believe about that? Listen to them. Oh, you might even ask them how they've come to believe what they believe. Oh, and ask them whether they think people should give an account. Then, if the opportunity arises, talk about what? Christians believe about judgment and about being saved from judgment and how we only believe what we believe about death and after because of Jesus. Or if somebody says, do gay people go to hell? You might say, hell is a pretty awesome and uncomfortable topic, but I do have an answer. But you'll need to understand though that the answer I'll give to this question would be the same answer if you'd asked me, do white people go to hell? Or do politicians go to hell? Or do people who sit on seats in churches go to hell? The answer is, some will and some won't. Because the issue is not your sexual preference, but whether you've repented and trusted in Jesus. Because all of us, not just gay people, deserve hell. Do you want to know what Jesus says about it and how he can rescue you from that judgment? Oh, if they object to anyone going to hell, you might say, I'm not real comfortable with that thought either. But it is what Jesus taught. And I think Jesus can be trusted to tell us the truth about what happens after death. Can I tell you why I think Jesus should be trusted on this? Oh, and if you have the opportunity, you might say, maybe he had a loving purpose in talking about hell, to warn us so we don't end up there. And yes, it is loving to warn people of certain dangers. If they're surprised Jesus taught about hell, well, you might say, Jesus said lots of surprising things. Would you like to read a biography of Jesus with me to get to know him for yourself? Remember, the aim is not to win an argument, or God forbid, to consign anyone to hell. Although, in faithfulness, you may need to warn someone that that is what the Lord, the Judge Jesus, says awaits them. But but it is a, a it is a. I've only directly done it once when I was speaking to somebody who was seducing somebody else's wife, and leaving his own wife and saying he was a Christian. It's it's a really very troubling thing to actually say to somebody, you keep doing that and you will go to hell. But it's true. And sometimes you might have to say it. But the aim, remember, is to help the person you're talking to avoid hell by meeting Jesus. So offer to read a gospel with them or invite them, say, to come to a Simply Christianity course here so they can get to know Jesus himself. But if you're a believer, don't keep silent. You must speak up. Use these opportunities. I recognise judgment and hell are uncomfortable topics. It's hard to think of people we love facing God's judgment. Oh, and thinking about judgment may disrupt your own comfort. It actually might rebuke our own ingratitude for salvation or challenge our determination to just get on with our own lives. But you see, we need to speak about judgment and hell for the sake of others, for our own sake and for Jesus' honour. God does save people by convicting them of the reality of hell. Let me read to you from Peter Hitchens' book, Rage Against God. Uh, He was a convinced atheist, like his brother, uh, Christopher Hitchens. And so the book is the story of how he changed his mind and became a follower of Jesus. In it, he recounts something that happened when he was on holiday in France. What I can recall, he writes, very sharply indeed, is a visit to the Hotel Dieu in Bone, a town my girlfriend and I had gone to mainly in search of the fine food and wine of Burgundy. But we were educated travellers and strayed, guidebook in hand, into the ancient hospital. And there, worth the journey, according to the Green Michelin Guide, was Roger van der Aden's 15th century polyptych, The Last Judgement. I scoffed. Another religious painting. Couldn't these people think of anything else to depict? Still scoffing, I peered at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell, out of my usual faintly morbid interest in the alleged terrors of damnation. But this time I gaped, my mouth actually hanging open. These people did not appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation, Because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, their hair and in an odd way the set of their faces were entirely in the style of my own time. They were me and the people I knew. One of them. And I've always wondered how the painter thought of it is actually vomiting with shock and fear at the sound of the last trump. I did not have a religious experience. Nothing mystical or inexplicable took place. No trance, no swoon, no vision, no voices, no blaze of light. But I had a sudden, strong sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of time. A large catalogue of misdeeds, ranging from the embarrassing to the appalling, replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. And what if there were? How did I know there were not? I did not know. I could not know. Van was still earning his fee, nearly 500 years after his death. I had simply no idea that an adult could be frightened in broad daylight and after a good lunch by such things. I've always enjoyed scaring myself mildly with the ghost stories of M.R. James, mainly because of the cosy, safe feeling that follows a good fictional fright. You turn the page and close the book and the horror is safely contained. This epiphany was not like that at all. No doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. I could easily make up some other more creditable story. But I should be even more ashamed to pretend that fear did not I have felt proper fear, not very often, but enough to know that it is an important gift that helps us to think clearly at moments of danger. I have felt it in peril on the road, when it slowed down my perception of the bucking, tearing, screaming collision into which I had hurled myself, thus enabling me to retain enough presence of mind to shut down the engine of my wrecked motorcycle and turn off the fuel tap in case it caught fire and then to stumble, badly injured, to the relative safety of the roadside. Uh, I felt it outside a copper mine in Africa, he was a journalist, when the car I was in was surrounded by a crowd of enraged, impoverished people who had decided, with some justification, that I was their enemy. Their fear enabled me to stay silent and still until the danger was over, when I very much wanted to cry out in panic or do something desperate both of which I am sure would have led to my death. I felt it when Soviet soldiers fired on a crowd rather near me, and so I lay flat on my back in the filthy snow, quite untroubled by my ridiculous position, because I had concluded wisely that being wounded would be much worse than being embarrassed. But the most important time was when I stood in front of what Roger van der Vandervaden's great altarpiece and trembled for the things of which my conscience was afraid and is afraid. Fear is good for us and helps us to escape from great dangers. Those who do not feel it are in permanent peril because they cannot see the risks that lie at their feet. Speaking of the reality of judgment and hell is good for others. It's good to fear God's judgement. And we need to speak about judgement and hell if we're believers for our own sakes. You see, Jesus expects us to be faithful to him and his teaching. And remember what he said in Matthew 10? So have no fear of that's people who object and scoff at the gospel of Jesus. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus expects his people to be faithful, faithful to his teaching and faithful to his claim that he is the Lord with authority to judge and forgive. We should tremble not to speak of what he speaks of. And you should speak up for your Lord's sake. You mustn't let people think that your Lord Jesus died just to make your life a little better or to give you a sense of inner peace or to let you live a more respectable life. The Lord Jesus is the great conqueror of the enemies of our race. The sin and death that mars and destroys, enslaves and impoverishes, breed hatred and lies. Don't trivialise his death. He died to save you from the hell we all deserve. To bring a rescue we could never achieve and we could never hope for of our own. Jesus is the one who destroys death and he will bring the new heaven and earth. He is the one to whom every knee will bow. Speak of judgment and hell and eternal life for your Lord's sake so people know his greatness. If you're a believer, speak up and live right. Live that life of loving your neighbour that Jesus calls you to. People won't listen to you speak of hard things if they see a life full of condemnation, hear a voice full of anger. They might listen if these hard things comes from one they know genuinely cares for them, like the Lord Jesus cares for us. They might listen if the one, in the one speaking they have met gentleness and kindness as well as an unwavering commitment to the truth of Jesus. You don't get angry at blind people who can't see the way. You don't get angry at people who aren't persuaded by your gospel arguments. You help them. If you're a believer in Jesus, speak up, Seize the opportunity for the sake of others, for your own sake and for the glory of Jesus. And if you're somewhere sitting here who does not yet believe in Jesus, sitting here overhearing this believer's conversation, well, I'm glad you had that opportunity tonight because your life matters. What you do matters and yes, the wrong you do and have done matters. Today you've heard the bad news. Jesus says there is a judgement and the outcome of that judgement is eternal life or eternal punishment. You need to know the diagnosis so that you will consider the cure because you've also heard tonight the best news. The Christian story is of a God, a holy creator who sent his son to save you from the consequences of of what you deserve. A son, Jesus, who through his death and rising has authority to forgive and to judge. A son, Jesus, who gave his life to free those who trust him from that judgment, from fear of hell, and to give them forgiveness and real hope, an eternal hope in a world full of death. Maybe God has convicted you as you have overheard the conversation that you also will be judged and you know that you face eternal condemnation from a just God for the things you have done. Well, if you have that conviction, don't ignore it, act. Come and talk. Come and find out more about Jesus. Better still, call out to Jesus for mercy. He lives, he came to save you from judgment and hell and he hears those who call to him. That's right, he'll hear you. He will hear everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who calls on the Lord Jesus' authority for forgiveness and life. Why don't you make that you? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, these are hard things, but we pray in your mercy that we would listen to Jesus. We pray in your mercy that we would have conviction of the truth of what Jesus says. And we pray in your even greater mercy that you would turn us to call upon Jesus for the mercy and forgiveness. He will give to all who call upon him. And gracious Heavenly Father as believers in Jesus give us the love and the courage that will speak that will share what the Lord Jesus has so clearly taught that there is judgment that there is an eternal separation and he is the one through his death who can save from that judgment and give life. We ask this in his name. Amen.